0: Ben, now there's a question. Now, what if I, uh, what if I'm a worm? Does that work for me? What if I'm, what if I'm a worm? Does uh, God work with worms too? We come today to our final message in a series of messages on the life of a guy called a worm. If you can imagine, God said to him one time, "Fear not, thou worm, Jacob." And we're going to answer that question today. There's a real importance in knowing Jacob's story. And I hope that you have a worn spot in your Bible from about Genesis 25 on to about 50. Over since the first part of March, we've been mostly here in the book of Genesis, there ta- telling the story of Jacob the worm, who who God started a story with Jacob and it's one of the sweetest stories of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, God keeps referring to Jacob like in uh, Psalm 46, uh, the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the one who directs all the armies of heaven is with us. He's the God of Jacob. He says, I'm the God who has armies of angels, and I'm Jacob's God. And I'm with you. I'm powerful, and I work with worms, like you. That's what he says. Psalm 146 in verse 5 says this, and I love this. Happy, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose whose hope is in the Lord his God. And I like this too. Psalm 78 said this: says this God has established a testimony in Jacob. He's it, it, talking about a guy who became a nation, Israel. He says, I'm telling a story. Establish a testimony. A, think, when you think testimony in the Bible, think miniature biography and one of the biggest biographies in the book of genesis is the story of of jacob and he said this you're happy if you have the god of jacob for your help and if your hope is in the lord and psalm 78 said i established a biography in jacob a story in jacob he says i want you to know the jacob story i want you to understand the jacob story and i want you to tell your children the jacob story the bible specifically teaches this is a very important story and for us to understand the story of jacob is to understand something about god and for us to understand the story of jacob is to see the kind of wild adventure that god takes people on because god took jacob the worm on a wild adventure and taught him some wonderful wonderful things. I want to go back over what we talked about here all together this morning and give you ten lessons from Jacob's wild adventure with God. Ten lessons from Jacob's wild adventure of God. Let me tell you the ten, then we'll go over them slower. There's the lesson of the worm. There's the lesson of the soup. There's the lesson of Isaac's wells. There's the lesson of the hairy goatskin. There's the lesson of the rock pillow. There's the lesson of the sister, cousin, wives. Hmm. There's the lesson of Laban the lousy father-in-law. There's the lesson of the holy limp. There's the lesson of the shameful wake-up call, and there is a crowning lesson, which is the tenth lesson. Ten messages, ten parts of God's word, the Bible. And I don't mean to be to trivialize these, but I wanted to make them concrete. So that you would think about them, the worm, the soup, the wells, the goatskin, the rock pillow, the sister-cousin, wise, the lousy father-in-law, the holy limp, the sobering wake-up call. These are just kind of in-your-face lessons that God used in Jacob's life, and he wants us to learn the lessons. And don't you love it when you can learn lessons and you don't have to go through the trouble that the person that learned the lesson went through? Smart people do that. I'll let you take the knot in the head, and I'll learn the lesson. I don't, want to, I don't want to defraud you. you probably get a few knots in your head along the way, too. But these are the ten lessons. The lesson of the worm is in Genesis 25:19 through 26. In the message, we called it, Fear not, you worm. And here's the lesson. Live for the blessing of God. Nothing is more important and nothing is more valuable than the blessing of God. The whole idea of Genesis is Genesis is not a book about primarily about men. It's about how God works with men. And it's about God's desire to draw men and women into a place of blessing. The whole book of Genesis continued talks about this blessing and continually repeats this blessing. And so you want to... The first lesson to learn is that, yes, God wants to bless worms like us. He wants to work with, with people who are... Uh, Undeserving of his blessing nothing's more important. Nothing's more valuable than the blessing of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord can be yours And do you remember us saying this and this is really important when you read your Bible You don't want to read the Bible like okay, these are good guys and these are bad guys And i'm going to try to be a good guy and try not to be a bad guy That's a bad idea That's like turning the, the, the Bible into a theistic series of theistic moralisms and that is not That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message of the Gospel. That is not the story of Jacob. Jacob is not blessed because he's a good guy and his brother Esau is a bad guy. The good guy in the story, if I can say it this way, is God. And so he gives his blessing to to worms. So you don't want to live a single day outside the covenant fellowship of God. So the first lesson, the lesson of the worm is, live for the blessing of God You can't have the blessing of God even if you're warm. Second lesson is the lesson of the soup. Remember the brothers kind of fussing over the soup? Remember that one? Um, Genesis 25, 24 through 34. We call that lives that leap into flame. Lives that leap into flame are are the lives that belong to people who have the good sense to recognize that the birthright has some value. When you realize the birthright has some value, then your life is likely to leap into flame. Your life is likely to be touched by the power of God, not because you're good, but because God has worked in you to give you the good sense to realize that that there's value to the birthright. There's value to the blessing of God. And this is the truth about Jacob. Esau didn't have that, but God did give Jacob that. Again, it's not good guys and bad guys. He's the hero, so you don't have to be the hero to have the blessing of God. This is a great story, isn't it? So far, so good. You can have the blessing of God, even if you and I both know you're a worm, and God knows you're a worm. That's wonderful. It's a good story. Second thing, lesson of the soup. Praise God continually, because He's the hero of the story. You don't have to be the hero of the story. He's the hero of the story. That's wonderful, isn't it? You have to buy the birthright from God. Third lesson, the lesson of Isaac's Wells. This was a story that's kind of inserted in, it's a story about Isaac, but it's in, it's put here in the middle of the story of Jacob, and it's really important because in, in short, it's the story of remember Isaac going around and redigging the wells, and he would dig the well, and then he would build the altar, and when he got to the end, he built the altar first, and then he dug the well, and there was a lesson in that. And the lesson is kind of Matthew 6.33. If you want to walk with the God of Jacob, seek Him first. You build the altar first, and then you dig the wells. You see to it that you're worshiping God, and then you're concerned about your daily needs and the basic stuff of your life. But you don't want to get that out of order, or you won't be living in the favor of the blessing of the Lord. You want to experience that. Seek God and His blessing before and above everything else, including the physical necessities of life. Because God is at work in your life, you want to, and, and here's what we said during that message. It, it, we said it this way, and I hope that you can remember this. Never lose your place in the story of God. Never lose your place in the story of God. Here, here's an example. Someone comes along and they say something mean to you or they do something bad to you, or something tragic happens to you, or you lose your job, or just terrible things happen, or or you get tempted, you can easily forget where you are in the story of God. That God is your God. That He's going to take care of you. That temptations draw you away from God. That discouragements draw you away from God what do you do in order to not lose your place in the story of God? You go back to the altar over and over again. The altar is more important than the wells. In other words, it's more important that you know and worship God than it is that you have your basic daily physical necessities met. And that was the story there of Isaac's wells. So you have the story of the worm, the story of the soup, the story of the wells. The story, you remember the lesson of the hairy goat skin, don't you? Genesis 27, and we call this message Holy Chutzpah, because what we're saying here is you don't have to be someone you're not in order to have the blessing of the Lord. Remember, Jacob tries to pretend he's Esau in order to get the blessing of the Lord, and can you hear the Lord going, hey, this is a silly charade. You don't have to do this. I intend to give you my blessing, but how many of you spend a lot of your life trying to be somebody you're not in order to fake God out in order to bless you. It takes him a long time to figure out. Remember a a little bit later on in Peniel, God comes to him and says, What's your name? And he says his name and he blesses him anyway. Even though he knows his name and he admits who he is, you don't have to pretend you're somebody you're not. In order to have the blessing of the Lord, let's review. Number one, live for the blessing of the Lord. Number two, praise Him continually because He's the hero of the story. You don't have to be. Lesson three, seek God in His blessing before and above everything else, including the physical necessities of life. Lesson four, the lesson of the hairy goatskin. You don't have to be somebody you're not to have the blessing of the Lord. So because He's eager to give it to you, you ought to have enough holy hoot spot to go claim the blessing of the Lord because it's on His merit and not your own. Number five, the lesson of the rock pillow. Wow, what a powerful story. In the story of Jacob, is this time when God breaks into Jacob's life in Bethel. Remember that? He's, his parents have said, You better get out of town because your brother wants to kill you because you deceived your brother and you conned your brother. And he goes out and he puts his head on a rock. God breaks into his consciousness. God reveals himself to Jacob. Jacob responds to God's revelation. This is a big life lesson for Jacob. It's a huge life lesson for all of us. When God reveals himself to you, you always want to respond to his revelation. And he reveals himself more. When he speaks to you in nature, creation, in the law, in the word of God, if he speaks to you through things, you want to respond. This happened during a song service right over there. I had a sense of guilt over something I'm not going to tell you I did. Because it doesn't have anything to do with you except one of you. And while I'm singing the song, it's just like, I thought, my goodness, I can't wait to get to that person and seek their forgiveness for an insensitivity. In other words, I think God revealed Himself to me in that song. And I am eager to go respond to that revelation. When I read my Bible and God speaks to me, I don't just read it, I respond... When God spoke to Jacob, Jacob wakes up and he explodes in response to God. He recognizes that for the first time in his life there is a God, that all the world around him is a holy place, that God is there. And that's the lesson of the rock pillow. Be aware and responsive when God reveals himself to you, especially when you're crushed by mounting uncertainties. Remember, he's on his way out of town. He wonders if his brother's going to catch up with him and kill him. He's, there's kind of the promise that maybe he's going to meet the girl he's going to marry. And so he's wondering if he can make this 500-mile journey in a very difficult... So he has lots of uncertainties, and you may feel that way right now. Crushed by mounting uncertainties, things that you're not positive. All of us are this way, we're not sure what happens tomorrow, except that we know this, like the little chorus that we used to sing when I was a boy. And I used to tell my mom and dad, this is my favorite chorus. It used to be my favorite chorus. I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand. With God, things don't just happen Everything by Him is planned. So as I face tomorrow with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles and give to Him my all. I thank my parents and my God. That's a lesson that was put in my little heart in song when I was a boy. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And so when He speaks to me, I respond to His revelation, even when I'm crushed under mounting uncertainties in my life. That's the lesson of the rock pillow there's so much there in Genesis 29. There's a the lesson of the, you know, the Leah, and Rachel, the sisters who were his cousins, who were his wives. Like a soap opera. It's worse than a soap opera. You wouldn't write a soap opera like that. And he taught. And, and here God is developing in Jacob a hunger for God. And the lesson is: look to God for your soul hungers, not to the Rachels in your life. But look to God for your soul hungers. No man, no woman, no car, no achievement, no possession can, can fill the whole soul hunger in your life. And Jacob had to learn that over and over again. But he had to learn that with his wives. Look to God for your soul hungers, or you'll be vulnerable to sin. And you'll put too much pressure on the people in your life. Can I review? Live for the blessing of God. Lesson of the worm. Live to praise God continually because you don't have to be a hero. He's the hero in the story. Lesson of the soup. Seek God and His blessing above and before everything else, including the physical necessities of life, the lesson of the wells, the lesson of the hairy goatskin. You don't have to be somebody or not. In order to get the blessing of the Lord. So have some holy hootspa. Lesson of the rock pillow. Be aware and responsive when God reveals himself to you. Even when you feel crushed under mounting uncertainties, God will speak to you and he wants you to respond to him. Lesson of the sister-cousin wives. Don't look to anybody or anything else to fill the soul hungers that you have. But look to God to fill the soul hungers that you have. People are not the source of blessing, only he is the source of blessing. People, things, achievements can't satisfy you, only he can satisfy you. Seven, that's number seven. Number eight, the less of the holy limp, less of penile. Remember that? He meets with God, he's going to face Jacob, he's scared, he meets with God, he may strut in, but he limps out, right? He wrestles with God. In the darkest struggles of his soul, he meets with God. Knows who God is face to face. He goes deeper with God at Peniel. We don't want to have midnight wrestling matches. We don't want that to happen to us. We don't, want to be, we don't want to struggle. We want a life without struggle, but that's not the way it works. God meets us in the dark night of our soul. God meets us in the midnight wrestling matches. God meets us in our struggles and will reveal things about himself to us in our struggles. That's the, isn't that amazing, wonderful story of Jacob that he would teach us that? truth there at penile this is probably true important for us to remember that that god meets us in our struggles i made a mistake here and i skipped number seven so now you're going to be really messed up i told you number eight this is number seven because remember he had the problem with the father-in-law laban before he got to penile so you remember he goes to work for rachel and worse uh, works for Laban to have Rachel. He gets, he gets to marry Leah and Rachel. And he has children there. And he has a conflict with Laban. And then he's, he eventually parts with Laban. He comes back to Peniel, where he's coming back to Canaan. And he's going to meet Esau. He meets with the Lord there. But back with the matter with Laban, the part that I skipped is number seven. The, the lesson of Laban is the lesson of the lousy father-in-law. And a better way to say it might be this. And that is that God sanctifies our labor. The whole matter of our provision, our poverty, our prosperity, our work, uh, where we work, who we work for. This, those are big circumstances in our life. And God used those circumstances in Jacob's life and God will use those circumstances in your life. You don't just come to church and learn about God. Monday morning, Tuesday morning, you go to work, you learn about God. You go to the shop, you go to the factory, you go to the school, you go to the, the, uh, the store. You learn about God a lot there. You go to the hospital, you learn a lot about God in where you work. Out in the kind of raw life, and this happened to to Jacob too, he also learned this, and this is an important lesson, trust God to prosper you, because if God says he will prosper you, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter what other people do, and what's with with Laban, This is number seven. The lesson of Laban, the lousy father-in-law, Genesis 30, is trust God to prosper you because if God has chosen to bless you, no one can successfully interfere with this blessing. By the way, this is kind of a complex outline. I'll put it online so you can find it online if you want to. But this is the lesson. Hear this lesson. God alone is the one who prospers you. This is important in our time because all of us are tempted to kind of look to the company for a blessing. Look to the bailout for a blessing. Look to the government for a blessing. Look to, you know, to our job for a blessing. I'm, I'm okay as long as i got some income coming in. This is not what the Bible teaches, though. The Bible teaches that we are dependent on the one who gives all good and perfect gifts. That we are dependent on him alone. It would be a good place to say amen right there, even in faith. Just trust the Lord and say amen. Even if you are trusting a Ford Motor Company or Chrysler or President Obama, just say amen right there. Because I will tell you, that's where we need to go. If we're looking for the idols that we serve, this is where we need to park it, right here. Because in our church, we're like, oh wow, I love Jesus and I'm trusting him and I'm serving him as long as I have a good job. But if it looks like I might lose my home or things might go south or turn sour, then I'm a little bit frightened. Maybe if you're, maybe one of the ways you can tell if your job is your idol is if you, your job is threatened and you get worried or angry about that, then it shows there's a measure of idolatry in your job. No job is worth worshipping, folks. No company is worth worshipping here. But God is to be worshipped. Where does the money come from that we live on? It doesn't come from our company. It comes from our God. Who do we depend on for our daily bread? Not from our store, not from our work, not from our company. Listen, you may have a great company and benefits and everything and a secure job, but listen, if tomorrow you have a stroke and you can't go to work, you're done. And they're not going to pay you very long. And you may, your retirement and all of that whole health thing, it may kind of like go away like chaff in the wind too. It's God that we depend on. And sometimes if it's not true that we're depending on God and you're a child of God, let me tell you what the blessing of the Lord is going to look like in your life. He is going to threaten that. That's why pastors ought to have, this is not one, but they ought to have resignation letters in their pocket all the time. they got to be ready to say, well, this is church. I'm not depending on this church. I love this church. I wouldn't mind being here the rest of my life. I love this church. But I'm not depending on this church or the people. You know, people are fickle, my goodness. They can like you one day, not like you the next. It's God we depend on. It's God we depend on. Somebody give me a paycheck. Hey, I'll take it to the bank. Cash the check, you know. As long as it comes in, I'm going to cash that check. But I understand every time I sign that check on the back, I say to my God, God, you're good. You're the one that's taking care of me all my life, even though I'm a worm and you know it. God, you're the one that put food on the table. Lots of food. More food than I need on the table. And you continually have blessed and you continually have satisfied. You, You continually, listen, if God is God, He can take care of us even if we live in Southeast Michigan. If God is God, He can take care of us if Chrysler makes it. Or if Chrysler, and I hope they make it, but if they don't make it, God can still take care of us. God is not, God is not worshiping a Ford Motor Company. Okay? He doesn't do that. It's a wonderful company. Thank God for it. I have personal ties to this. And I've gone all all, all throughout my life in interesting ways, some interesting stuff. God can live without the Ford Motor Company. God can live without the Ford Motor Company. God, God can live without the, the Chrysler. He can live without the Big Three. He can live without America. We're, our, our nation is small, tons the sales uh, on the scales. So here's what we want to think. We want to think like this. I've got a lousy father-in-law who's shifting things around and ripping me off all the time. But I have a wonderful God. And if He chooses to bless me, I'm going to be blessed. Whether or not my company makes it. Whether or not my job changes. It might be the best thing in the whole world that can happen to us if we shifted our affections from the job that we're serving to the God that we're serving. That idolatry will never satisfy us. So it's a lesson of the lousy father-in-law, the sanctification of labor. Just because people hurt you, just because people misunderstand you, just because people mistreat you, or if your job is threatened, or if things are unfair at work, just because those things are happening, does not mean that God cannot or will not bless you. That's the thing you want to have. God's blessing is going to happen if He chooses to bless you no matter what that company does. And then number eight was the lesson of the holy limp that I got out of order. But what an important lesson it is that Jacob, when the sun comes up in the morning, he limps away, having met God face to face in this situation. Somebody said it like this. It was at Bethel that Jacob was awakened to his need for the grace of God. It was at Peniel that Jacob came face to face with an experience of the grace of God. And you're gonna see the ultimate thing is something later that we'll talk about. The only thing it says about Jacob in the book of Hebrews, we'll get to that. But this is another way the Bible has us saying that. In First Corinthians one twenty-seven through twenty-nine, God especially meets us in our struggles and in our weaknesses to make us princes with God. First Corinthians one twenty-seven through twenty-nine says this about God choosing. Hear this now, God choosing. God has chosen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God chose weak things, foolish things. Catch in a track with me on this. Listen, this is important. Hear this now. God looks around and he doesn't look around for strong players on his team. How many times have you heard me say this? He doesn't look around for a good shortstop that can really dig the ball out and get her over to first fast. He doesn't look around. He looks around for some loser kid. Kicks the ball all the time. Doesn't even belong in right field. He says, watch what I'm going to do with this guy. I'm going to take him and I'm going to make him a star on my team. Actually, he's a star, but I'm going to use him to bring glory to myself. Every illustration breaks down. This is what God is doing. This is the story of Jacob story of Jacob is like the bad news bear guy in a, in a right field. It doesn't even belong to be on a team. He chooses the weak. Get that? Get that? Now this is what the Bible says. Now I'm back in my text here in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world The things which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not, God has chosen. In order to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh would glory in His presence. You get it? This is a theme of the Bible. He's the one we honor. He's the one we glorify. Because He's chosen these losers and made winners out of them by His grace. His relentless grace, He's brought these people into His plan. And that's what He did with Jacob the ninth lesson is the lesson of the shameful wake-up call, that horrible story we told about Dinah and what her brothers did and, the, and how God called Jacob then back to Bethel. After this horrible catastrophe, he drew him into communion. And, folks, here's the lesson, and that's this. The catastrophes of your life should push you into communion with him. And if you are not in communion with him, it is a catastrophe. It, God, he draws you back, and he did this with Jacob God even uses the worst things, the saddest things, the hardest things, the ugliest, the unspeakable. There are many unspeakable things in the story of Jacob that I hesitate to even say in the pulpit. things that his sons did, things that happened with his children, they're just dark, unspeakable, sinful, depraved things. But God has chosen the base things of this world. This is the way God works. This is why this is such a wonderful story and it's such a hopeful story for us. Because all of us can see ourselves so clearly in the story and our messed up families and our struggles forward with God. That God would take people like Jacob and that he would take people like us and that he would do beautiful things in ugly people. How wonderful is he? That's the lesson of the shameful Wake-up call in Genesis 34 and 35, God even uses catastrophe to draw us into communion with Him. And without communion, there will always be catastrophe whenever there are competing affections. And so, and you've heard me use this phrase before, and I'll just say it again because it's a poetic, helpful phrase, I think. Much of God's mercy in our life takes the form of a severe mercy, a hard thing, a catastrophe, a setback, a painful thing, things the way we wish they weren't, absence of something that we desire, presence of something we wish wasn't there, pain in our life or pain in our body. God isn't giving us this kind of flowery picture of if you're blessed of a God, then everybody's going to like you and love you and you're never going to be sick and you're going to be all... People who teach that, I can't believe that they are. They read their Bibles how can they go around the world and see what's happening in the world and, and actually read their Bible and go on television and say, and say that this false prosperity gospel is wrong? That's not how God works. It never is how God has worked, and it's not how God's going to work in the future. He works within the hardest and most difficult things of our life that teach us the lessons that we need to learn. And here's the tenth and crowning lesson of his life. The best way I know how to say it is... The crowning lesson in Jacob's life is the relentless grace of God. The crowning lesson, the lesson that amplifies all the other lessons is God's grace, God's sovereign pursuing grace. Now, i got a sovereign in his life. What does that mean, sovereign? It just means that God's ultimately in control of everything. There's no greater power. And even things that are bad, God takes and he works them out for good. You know, the Bible teaches that. All Bible believers believe the Bible teaches that. He sovereignly works everything together for good, right? So when you are tempted to stray away from the good shepherd of your life, you're tempted to say, well, God is at work in everything, but he's not at work in this. At one point in his life, Jacob says, everything's falling apart. His favorite son, Joseph, is sold off into slavery, but he thinks he's dead. His sons go away, they come back, they want the other son. You've you got to read the whole story, I can't tell it all. And at that point, Jacob says, I'm going to die and go down to the grave of a broken man in gray hair. He says, all these things are against me. So that's what he says. All these things are against me. You ever feel that way? I talk to people. They say, you didn't believe this stuff that's going wrong in my life. Everything bad. All these things are against me. It's like God is against me. It's like everything is against. Jacob, Jacob, God is at work in Jacob's life in relentless grace. But at a point in Jacob's life... There's a 15-year period of, of Jacob's life where you would think he was in clinical depression over the fact that he thought that Joseph has died. He, he acts like he really only has two sons. One of the things that make his other sons resentful of these guys and willing to sell them off into slavery is because of this messed up attitude that he had in his life. If this is a man that God relentlessly pursued in his sovereignty, and he relentlessly pursued... With his grace, his unmerited favor, his gifts that he gave, drawing him into covenant, and he continually repeats this covenant promises of God. It, now, this comes to kind of our text, and I saved it here as we're going through Genesis for now. Look in your Bibles now in Genesis 48. Genesis 48 is coming to the end of Jacob's life. Joseph has gone off into Egypt, he's had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob's now coming to the end of his life, and he's going to do a couple of things. Jacob is going to die and when Jacob dies, before he dies he wants to bless his sons and his grandsons He's going to say some things about his sons. They kind of serve as blessings and encouragements and warnings and and then he but he wants to To put his hands on his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh and he wants to bless Ephraim and Manasseh Now who was the oldest if you remember we always say Ephraim and Manasseh, but Manasseh was the oldest one But we say Ephraim and Manasseh. And that is really kind of indicative of a major theme in the Bible. And it's a theme in a literary way that God gives us in the book of Genesis very, very clearly. It's interesting. And I'll explain it to you as we we look at this. Here now comes Joseph, and he asks his father Jacob who's about to die to bless. Jacob wants to bless his grandsons. And here's what it says there. In chapter 48, verse 14, Israel, Jacob, stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the lads. What, what's Jacob doing here? This is the same guy who before has said, all these things are against me, but something has happened in his life. God has taught him something. We know this is a really significant thing because it's this part of the Bible that's repeated in, Je- in Hebrews chapter 11, the thing that God commends Jacob for, the thing that God says this is an evidence of Jacob's progress in faith is this act right here. Where he blesses them and where he says this, as a matter of fact, in a, in a translation I think is even clearer, he's saying this, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked has been my shepherd all of my life until this very day. This is a powerful statement of faith that Jacob makes and God the Holy Spirit captures and repeats in Hebrews chapter 11. It's like Jacob's graduate school. Jacob's about to die and he looks back over his life and instead of saying all these things are against me, he says, oh, I get it. Hey, boys, don't ever forget. God will be a shepherd to you. God will watch over your life. Uh, The God of Grandpa Abraham and my father Isaac and my God, naming my name, he says, he will be your God. He will be your shepherd king. He'll be your shepherd. He will guide. He will he will um, be your angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth which is just basically him repeating the promises of God. You see what happens? It takes Jacob his entire life but when he gets to the very end of his life, he looks around and he says, okay, I get it now, God. I see all the things that you've done. This is a great story because Jacob doesn't bloom early. He blooms so late. It's hope for all of us. We're like... People that it took us forever to get it figured out, and we're still working on it. And somebody looks at you and says, man, I had that figured out when I was 20. What on earth is wrong with you? You're still falling on your face all the time. You're still making a fool out of yourself. It's like, well, you know, you just tell them, say, well, you know what? I'm not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. And so by the time I get to the end of my life, maybe like Jacob, I'll be able to look back and say, my shepherd king has guided me all this way. He's led me by my hand all this way. And all those ugly things, even the mess that I made of my life, God redeemed that. He's my Redeemer. He's my angel. He's my shepherd. He's my King. Doesn't that make you want to get saved if you're not saved? Doesn't that make you want to run to Christ? I can't imagine why you wouldn't. That makes perfect sense. When you understand what the Bible teaches about us, and then he goes and blesses all of his sons and makes mention of all of his sons. And then when he gets there, then to the end of chapter 49 of Genesis the uh, scriptures say that when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he got all done with his blessing, Ephraim Manasseh, and Manasseh. You, and you remember he switched and he, he blessed the younger over the older. What was that about? Why would he bless the younger or the older? Was it just because he was remembering when he was a kid and he was younger than his brother and he got the blessing over his brother? I would say yes, except for the fact that that's a theme in Genesis and it's a theme throughout the Bible. Think about it like this. In the Bible, whenever you see an older or a younger it's like God passes over the one you expected to be chosen and chooses another one. Not that God doesn't ever bless the firstborn. He certainly does. You're looking for a king in Israel, and he goes all the way down the birth order, and he gets to David, and he says, he'll be the king. You've got a righteous person, a self-righteous person, a harlot, and Jesus chooses the harlot over here and makes her the trophy of God's grace. How beautiful is that, Huh? And throughout this whole reversal of primogeniture, it's not the firstborn. Over and over, if you look in the book of Genesis, there are dozens of references to this. Dozens of references to this in the Bible. And this is one of them. And so Jacob has figured something out about God. I believe that Jacob has an awakening, understanding, and a change because of the grace of God. Here's what's happened. In Jacob's life, he didn't have a spiritual bone in his body, right? He gets to Bethel finally and he's under all this pressure and he has an awakening to the grace of God. He gets to penile after he's been through all this stuff, and he has a deep experience of the grace of God. He gets to the end of his life, and you can tell by this prayer that he has been changed by the grace of God. That, that's something that all of us need to go through, an awakening to the grace of God, an experience of the grace of God, and sanctification, change by the grace of God. And one of the ways you can tell if you've really been changed by the grace of God is you see his sovereignty in your life. You see that he's been at work in everything. You see His grace in your life that He's been gifting you and being good to you. You're able to take all your sorrows and you're able to baptize those sorrows or recognize that God was at work in your sorrows. All those heart absences, all those painful things that have happened to you, stuff that's messed up, stuff that's unjust, things that are unfair things that you think about in the night and you can't talk to anybody about. They're all a part of the way the great shepherd of your soul is shepherding you up to heaven and giving you His grace in your life. Isn't this a wonderful story? Thank God for it. The one who wrote this story is the God of the universe. So it is. Whom God chooses to bless will be blessed. Genesis is about God working with men to awaken in them a need for His grace. To... Giving them an experience of God's grace to change them by his grace. Genesis is about the fact that God wants to draw you. He wants to draw people into a covenant relationship with him. In other words, he wants to give you things. He wants to keep his, he wants to get you involved in a promise. I promise you this, I promise you that. And then he's given his son, the Lord Jesus, so that he can pour out eternal, infinitely worthwhile promises to you. Why would you resist that? This is a wonderful thing. So, I would say, boldly trust him, obey him, and face your enemies. I want you to imagine going to heaven, okay? We talked a lot about Jacob. I'm going to have to apologize to him, I'm afraid, when I get to heaven. Jacob, about the series. You know, earlier in the series, they said some pretty mean things. Are uh, we okay on this? I'm sorry. I was trying, you know. I want you to, can we just go on a little flight of fantasy here for a minute? Imagine that, I'm not sure what it's going to exactly be like in heaven, but I want you to imagine with me that we're going to heaven, okay? And up in heaven, there's going to be, there's, there's like a poster goes out, or there's an email that goes out, and it says it's a Jacob week. It's going to be Jacob, and Jacob is, and everybody's going to kind of jet to Jerusalem. We're all going to kind of get up there, really. We can, you know, unhindered travel from wherever in the, where we're living, and we're all going to come, and then Jacob will be the speaker for the week, let's say. And and say, this is going to be, and I can you imagine that? You know, we go to a Bible conference, and this guy's going to talk. Can you imagine Jacob is the guy? And Jacob is going to tell something like this. Jacob says, "For a week, I am going to explain the relentless grace of God. By the time I'm done explaining the relentless grace of God in my life, you, throughout the entire week, are going to be moved over and over again to tearful, joyful worship of God, joyful, happy worship of God, and the whole week." And, here, and Jacob's curriculum, his teaching, his, his explanation of God's work in his life, sounds something like this. God chose to bless me. He relentlessly pursued me with His grace even though my family was messed up and my past was checkered, even though I could rightfully be called a worm. And then he goes, he's going to go on and he's going to say something like this. Even though I had personal failures and dishonesty and personal weaknesses, God pursued me with His relentless grace. Even though I wasn't first in the birth order or from wealthy people, God pursued me with His relentless grace. Even though there was poverty, And prosperity, wages and taxes, people that mistreated me, jobs that I gained and lost, God pursued me in His relentless grace. Even though there were family tensions and conflicts that are too ugly for me to describe, God continued to pursue me in His relentless grace. Even though there were personal injuries against me and tensions, even though I had deep soul hungers and desires that went unmet, even though I had terrifying struggles in the darkness of the night in my darkest hours and the tragedies of my life. God was there in all of them, continually pursuing me with a relentless grace. The death of my loved ones, Rebecca and Isaac and Deborah and Rachel and, and the loss of Joseph for a large part of my life. And the, and, and, this, and the blessing of my sons and my grandsons. God continually pursued me with His relentless grace. Now, since all these things are true, and they are Whether or not Jacob is going to speak like that in heaven, I'm really not sure. But we know those things are true. That's the story of Jacob's life. And since they are true. Can I just suggest a couple of things to you today? One, live in covenant with God. Live in covenant with God. Another way of saying it, if you you allow me kind of a simplistic way of saying this, be saved. Be saved. There is a covenant that God has made with his people, Israel. And he did that. He made covenant with his people Israel. New covenant with his people Israel for the purpose of not for Israel. It was for us. It was for Gentiles. He made a, And this is the whole theme of the Bible. Just read it. Read the book of Acts. You can see he made a covenant with Israel like he worked with Jacob so that none of us would doubt that he could work with us. And the blessings of the covenant through Christ and the blood are ours when we're saved. Those blessings are, are for us. Though the covenant is with Israel. The purpose is that all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's us. So if you're not saved, get saved. If you are saved, worship, rejoice, and thank Him. And never let anything come between you and Him. Live in fellowship with God. Live in covenant with God by being saved. Live in fellowship with God. That's like sanctification, continual intimate fellowship with the Lord, continual obedience, submission to God. Because when you fall out of submission to God, you fall out of fellowship with God. And though His blessing is on your life as a Christian... Then you're still going to have heartaches and difficulties that are unnecessary. You yield to your shepherd king and don't ever stray away from him. Think about this. Remember the old book, Harold Bell Wright book called The Shepherd of the Hills? It is something how every once in a while somebody can come up with a, a poetic statement like that and it just kind of makes our heart, captures our heart. The shepherd of the hills. When I thought about this and I came to see what Jacob has said, I thought about my shepherd king Jesus as the shepherd of the hills of Judah. And he goes out, even now, and he searches the dark mountains, searches the dark mountain sides. He's looking for people. That is straight away from him. I want you to think about that while the family sing a song.